This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke. I mean, book of Colossians, sorry. Colossians chapter 1. We'll be reading from Colossians chapter 1 from 15 through 20. And if you'd like to follow along in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, it's located on page 983. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, before... I go into a time of prayer for the word. I do want to draw your attention to a resource we want to make available to you at our bookstall. Um, this is a ESV scripture journal. We bought a number of these for the book of Colossians and Philemon, and we encourage you to pick up one, and you can follow along during this sermon series. The text is on one side, and there's space for you to be able to take down notes or to journal, um, and so these resources will be available after service at our bookstall, um, that's going to be in the Fellowship Hall yeah, for a suggested donation price. And so we um, want to make this available. If, if more of you are interested, we'll, we'll order more um, as uh, the weeks go by. So letting you know about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. And now we ask for your spirit's help. We need the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see minds to understand, hearts to believe, and a will that chooses to obey. Lord, we pray that you work in us right now through the preaching of your word, for your glory, for our edification. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began our newest sermon series last week going through the book of Colossians, We only looked at the letter's introduction, which is mainly a section of thanksgiving, but we already began to make connections to the larger uh, theme of the book, that in just these first few verses in the introduction, we see uh, hints at, at Paul's larger purpose for writing this letter. He's writing, as we said last week, to address a growing presence of false teaching in this church. There was teaching going around that undermined the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. It was saying that being in Christ, being united with Christ by faith, that was a good start, but it's not enough. There's this entire system of spirituality you also have to adopt. If you look with me at chapter 2, verse 18, Paul actually identifies a particular individual behind this kind of teaching. There was a false teacher going around passing judgment on the Colossian believers. He was deeming them disqualified. 
making them feel spiritually incomplete, spiritually inadequate. So let me read verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. And that right there is the main problem. Whoever this was, he wasn't holding fast to the head, to Christ Jesus. Instead, he was holding fast to some system of spirituality that insisted on asceticism. If you're not familiar with that term, asceticism is is a severe form of self-discipline. It's all about the punishment of the body. Either you're actively harming yourself or you're passively withholding good things for yourself like food and drink. And all of it is seen as a means of trying to resist the, 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 uh, the, the desires of sin and to combat your sinful flesh. Paul calls all of this self-made religion in chapter 2, verse 23. And then there was this emphasis on worshiping angels. Apparently, this false teacher was saying that Christians are still susceptible to attacks by evil spirits. They're called, in chapter 2, verse 8, elemental spirits of the world. Uh, They're also referenced in chapter 2, verse 20. And so, this teacher is saying, you still need to call upon angels for their protection against these other evil spirits. You need to pray to these angels or to worship them, in a sense. So what's the main problem here? Well, the main problem is that this kind of teaching is, if you notice, it's turning believers to look to themselves or to look to angels, but they're not looking to Christ. Now, no one was denying Christ in the Colossian church. No one was saying he wasn't necessary for salvation, but they were just saying Christ is not enough. He must be supplemented by this or that system of spirituality. But the problem is, as Alistair Begg likes to say, a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. The minute you try to add to Jesus, you are letting go of Jesus. You're no longer holding fast to him. That's Again, what Paul accuses this false teacher of doing in chapter 2, verse 18, this teacher is not holding fast to the head. Now, notice with me that language of not holding fast to the head in chapter 2. Notice with me in chapter 1, in our text, chapter 1, verse 18, there's a parallel. So chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 2, verse 18 There's an emphasis on the head. And in chapter 1, Paul describes Jesus as that head. He is the head of the church. And so what Paul's doing right now is he's setting up in chapter 1 an argument that he is going to defend more directly. He's going to defend the sufficiency of Christ for salvation in chapter 2 by first, in chapter 1, exalting the supremacy of Christ. Because Christ is all-supreme, he is all-sufficient for our salvation. Christians in the Colossian church back then and Christians in our church right now, we are bombarded all the time with messages telling us that we are not enough, that we're not 
complete, that we're not adequate. We need to be doing more. We need to be actively pursuing more. We need to adopt this or that system of spirituality if we want to experience the fullness of God and his salvation. Now here in Colossians, we're dealing with someone who has malicious intent in the way he's teaching this. But, you know, in my experience, many times preachers and teachers, they create the same effect, but yeah, and, and, and so they make you feel spiritually inadequate, but they're not necessarily meaning to do that. You know, growing up in church, I, I heard preachers and retreat speakers who I'm sure they were just trying to encourage me by, by sharing what they do for their devotions. You know, how they wake up really early before the crack of dawn and they spend this or that amount of time in the Word or in prayer or in fasting and, and I, I'm, I'm sure they were just describing how they dated their wife and how they only held hands and they, they never kissed until their wedding day. And I'm sure, I was just given the benefit of doubt that all of that was communicated to me and to others as just being descriptive of what they did. But the thing is, if we're not careful, these personal experiences of other believers end up getting interpreted as prescriptive. This becomes a standard, a system of spirituality that other Christians think that they must adopt. I know I thought that. I, I know I felt spiritually inadequate or incomplete until I adopted this preacher or this speaker's way of walking with Christ. Well, friends, the gospel response to these feelings of inadequacy right now is the same as it was back then. The gospel response is to exalt Christ. It's to demonstrate his adequacy, his supremacy, his preeminence, and that's exactly what Paul is doing in this morning's passage. Commentators describe our passage as really a hymn. Now, whether Paul borrowed it or he created it himself, we're not exactly sure, but it's considered a hymn-like passage because of its lyrical structure and because of the way the words are, are repeated throughout and they sound similar to each other in the original language. Now, what we're going to see as we look at this this morning is that there are two parts to this hymn. And in the first part, Paul is, what he's doing here is he's exalting the supremacy of Christ over creation. That's his focus in the first half of the hymn. Now, in the second half, he is exalting the supremacy of Christ over the church, which can be seen really as a new creation. And so there are some interesting parallels that we're going to be seeing here. That, you know, a parallel is what you would expect to find when you're reading something like a hymn, something that's poetic. And so we're going to see these parallels, and they're all intended to help us to really find our adequacy, our completeness in the supremacy of Christ. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline breaking up these two halves to this hymn and different things we're going to see in each section. So let's begin with the first half of the hymn in verses 15 to 17. And this, as I said, is Paul's emphasis on the supremacy of Christ over creation. Now, I see three ways in which Christ is supreme. First, 
He is supreme in that he reveals all of God from all eternity. I see this in the first part of verse 15, where it says he is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. That means we can not know him unless he reveals himself to us. And that's exactly the point here. God is revealed fully and perfectly in the Son. Even before time began, from all eternity past, the Son has imaged forth God. He has revealed God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it affirms the same truth. There it says, He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. So that's saying that the Son radiates the glory of God, if you want to think about it, like, like sunbeams radiate the glory of the sun in the sky. Do you realize Do you realize that when you are looking at a sunset, you are not actually seeing the sun itself. What you're seeing are sunbeams that have radiated from the sun, traveling at the speed of light, finally reaching your eyes. If it were not for the sunbeam, you would not see the sun. Now, the sunbeam and the sun, they're not different things, right? but they are distinct, and we can speak of them that way. Well, in the same way, God the Father and God the Son are not different beings. They are distinct, though, and we can speak of them distinctly. And if it were not for the Son, Paul is saying you would not see the Father. The eternal Son radiates the glorious image of God. Now, this image of God language is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1. That's where man, we're told, was made in the image of God. I think what Paul is saying here, what he's doing, is that he's saying that the original image of God, that image that all of humanity is patterned off of, is the preexistent eternal Son of God. That means if you want to know who you're supposed to be, what kind of person you are supposed to become, Paul is saying, look to the Son of God. Look to the eternal Son. Now, connect this back to the bigger presenting problem in this letter. Remember, the false teacher was no longer holding fast to the Son, and he was telling people, now, if you want to be close to God, if you want to be filled with God, he wasn't telling them to look to the Son. He was telling them to look to themselves, to look to angels. But how are they going to be close to God? How are they going to grow in God if they are not shown the image of God? Imagine working on a thousand-piece puzzle but without the box. Without the box, you're without the image on the front of the box. And without the image on the box, you have no idea what you're making, no idea what you're doing. Well, friends, the Son of God is like the image on the box. 
without looking to the Son, you would have no idea who God is. You would have no idea who you're supposed to be as one created in his image. Without looking to the Son, you will be lost without knowing, having no idea what to make of your life, what to do with your life. It is no surprise if you are struggling with feelings of inadequacy. If you want to be close to God, if you want to grow in God, you want to be filled with God, you want to be complete in God, then why look to anything or anyone besides the Son? He is the image of the invisible God. That's how he's supreme. And the second way in which Christ is supreme is that he rules over all creation. He rules over all creation. This is, I think, what Paul is getting at in verse 15 when he says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, I know that term firstborn has tripped up a lot of people over the centuries. It has led people to conclude that the son is firstborn in terms of birth order, as if to be firstborn of all creation means that the son was born first, and then everything else was subsequently created or born after him, maybe even created by his own hands. That was the ancient heresy of Arianism. It's why the Nicene Creed was developed in the first place, what we had just recited earlier. And this ancient heresy is preserved even today among different cult groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach that the Son is the first and highest of God's created beings. And they will point to even verses like this about him being the firstborn. But that is a gross misunderstanding of the biblical concept of firstborn. It's about first in terms of not birth order, but in terms of rank and honor. This idea of firstborn has to do with rule and authority. It's why if you look in Psalm 89, verse 27, Psalm 89, verse 27, David is described there as, quote, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So David is called the firstborn, but of course we all know he was actually the lastborn among his brothers. And he wasn't even the first king of Israel, he was the second king. And so in what sense is he the firstborn? It only makes sense if the term is being used in, this, in the idea of honor or preeminence. And of course the same would apply to Christ. He is the firstborn of all creation in the sense that he rules over all creation as the highest of kings. He rules not by virtue of conquest over rivals. He rules by virtue of being the sole creator. The son has no rivals because you're never in competition with those that you create, with those whose very existence depends on you. He has no rivals. Now you see Paul make this same argument here in verse 16, this argument of why is the son the firstborn? Why does he have all this rule and authority? Verse 16, for because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now those Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities would also include 
those evil spiritual forces that the false teacher was warning people about, saying that you need to turn to angels or other helps. Jesus rules them all. Paul's point really is this. If Jesus is the firstborn, if he is the highest king, the supreme Lord, firstborn of all creation, then why would you look to anything or anyone else if all the powers and authorities, visible and invisible, physical and spiritual, if all of them are at the mercy of the Son who created them, then clearly he does not depend upon them to accomplish and to complete your salvation. He is a sufficient Savior in himself because he is a supreme creator and ruler of all. Now that now relates to the third way in which Christ is supreme over creation. He is the creator and the point of all creation. And this is what Paul means at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. Paul is describing Christ as both the creator and notice as both the over and as well as the overall point of creation. All things, all things were made by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. I, I read an article about a about a black hole that astronomers found years ago. A black hole that's singing. Yes, it's singing. In a galaxy 250 million light years away, scientists say there is a black hole that has been humming B-flat for billions of years, but at a pitch that no human can hear. It's a B-flat that is 57 octaves below middle C on a standard keyboard. That is the deepest note detected in the universe. It is a tune you will never hear. But that's because it wasn't meant for us. That black hole and that note was made for Jesus. And he has been listening to it He has been taking joy in it for God knows how long before any scientist came across it. Friends, that's just another reminder that all things were created through him and for him. It's for Jesus. I keep reading in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him, In him, all things hold together. That means he's not just the creator of all things in the past. Friends, he is the sustainer of all things in the present. Christ is presently holding together every single molecule and particle in the universe within himself. He's got more than just the whole world in his hands. Friends, he's got the entire universe, the whole of creation in those hands. So go back to our presenting problem. You got this false teacher going around saying that Christ is not enough, but does that make any sense in light of these verses? If Christ is actively sustaining the entire creation from its beginning to its final end, then does it make 
any sense to doubt his ability to sustain you and your salvation from beginning to end? Does he really need to be supplemented by anything else? That's why throughout this letter, Paul is just baffled. He just doesn't understand why this false teaching would take any any hold on these people. Especially, look, in chapter 2, verse 16, he is baffled why anyone, if you have Christ, why would you turn and submit yourself under a system of spirituality full of regulations on what you eat or what you drink or what festivals you keep? Why would you try to supplement Christ? Christ, the supreme one. Why would you feel like you need to do that? He is sufficient. Why? Because he is supreme. So friends, if you feel inadequate, you feel incomplete, do not bother looking to yourself or to any other power. Look only to the creator and sustainer of all creation who will make you adequate through his supreme work of redemption. And that leads to the second half of our hymn where the focus is shifting from creation to redemption. As we said, the first half is about the supremacy of Christ over creation. This second half is about the supremacy of Christ over the church, the new creation. Again, there are three ways in which Christ's supremacy is exalted that mirror the three ways we saw in the first half. That's something you would expect when you're reading poetry, this mirroring, this parallelism. So first, let's see how Christ reveals all of God from the incarnation. I see this affirmed in verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Since the Colossians were made to feel as if being united with Christ is not enough, what Paul is doing here is he's making a point in verse 19 to state that the fullness of God himself is in Christ. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Now that is a huge claim to make because in the Old Testament, God only dwelt in one and only one place on earth. That's the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was considered the dwelling place of God. That's where you would travel if you want to meet God, you want to experience God. But Paul is saying that ever since the incarnation, since the Son of God took on flesh, ever since then, God has taken up new residence. He has a new dwelling place. Not a new temple, not a new city, but a new man. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who was called the Christ, the Messiah. Paul reaffirms this later in chapter 2, verse 9, where he says that in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the idea that the fullness of God would be contained in one man, found in one religion, friends, you have to understand just how offensive that is to our world today. Christians are accused of arrogance to claim that their founder is not just a unique source of knowledge about God, but God himself in the flesh. 
Moses never would have claimed to be God. Muhammad and Buddha wouldn't have either. Now, of course, they would have claimed to, to uniquely reveal God, to show the way to God. Keep these Ten Commandments. Follow these five pillars of faith. Internalize these eight noble truths. Follow the way that I took, and, and you'll see God in the end. That's what a typical religious leader would claim, to show you the way. But Jesus came onto the scene claiming to be the way. Christianity says the way to God is, is not a path. It's a person. It's not a lifestyle. It's a relationship. If you want to see God, then look to the person of Jesus. If you want to find God, you have to be found in Christ, in relationship with Christ. Listen, notice the harmony in this hymn. The first half. In the first half, Jesus reveals the fullness of God from eternity as the pre-existent Son of God. In the second half, he reveals the fullness of God from the incarnation as the incarnate Christ. There's also this transition in verse 18 from an emphasis on Jesus being the head or the ruler over creation to now him being the head or ruler over the church. Here's the second thing that we see. In the first half, we saw how Jesus rules over all creation as the firstborn. Well, look here in the second half. We see how Jesus rules over all new creation, over the church, as the firstborn from the dead. Look in verse 18. And he is the head of the church, the bo- uh, head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead, he, he's referencing the resurrection. And in this case, Christ was chronologically first to rise from the dead. He's the forerunner for all of us who will one day be resurrected unto eternal life. His resurrection is understood by Paul to be the beginning of a new creation. More resurrections are to come. But as we said earlier, the idea of firstborn, the way it's used in the Bible, focuses more so on rule and authority rather than on chronological order. And so if you notice, Paul is suggesting that Jesus was resurrected. He's the firstborn from the dead so that, so that in everything he might be preeminent. So that means before the resurrection, he was not preeminent in everything. How is that so? What was Jesus not preeminent over prior to his resurrection? Answer, death. Ever, ever since death was introduced to the world in Genesis 3, it has been unstoppable. It has been snuffing out dreams, cutting short, unfulfilled potential. It's been tearing apart families, stealing away loved ones. It has been holding humanity hostage by fear. In the words of the late Steve Jobs in his famous 2005 Stanford commencement address, quote, no one wants to die. 
Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. I wonder how true that statement is for you. If you're a Christian, I assume you want to go to heaven, but are you ready to die to get there? Or are you terrified? Are you terrified at the prospect of death? The Bible calls death an enemy, a universal enemy. It doesn't matter how strong you are, smart you are, rich you are, all of us will one day die. Jobs was right when he said that death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. Apparently not even Jesus. Jesus tasted death on the cross when he died in the place of sinners. But friends, the good news is that death could not hold him. Jesus didn't escape death. He willingly embraced it, and he surely defeated it, which is why Paul can say that Jesus is now preeminent in everything because of the resurrection. He is preeminent over everything, including death itself. Paul writes in another letter in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That word there for abolishing death, that word for abolish could be translated as to render ineffective. Jesus, he didn't get rid of death as a concept. Christians don't escape death. Christians continue to taste death as our Lord did. But for Christians, for those who are in Christ, death is defeated. Its power is broken. Paul says elsewhere that Jesus' death and resurrection has taken the sting out of death. He identifies that sting as sin. He says by dying for our sins, Jesus has made it possible for his disciples to face a stingless death. Yes, you will die, but there will be no sting in it if you are in Christ. You will be experiencing a death that has been rendered ineffective. What was once our enemy has now been made our servant, a footstool for King Jesus. And like any good servant, death is there to serve our best interest. Death is now gain for the Christian because we get to be with Christ. So for Christians, There is no reason to fear death. Why would you fear your servant? Your servant works for you and for your best interest. And it's all because, friends, it's all because Christ is now preeminent in everything. That's Paul's point. The Son of God now rules over the old and now also the new creation as the incarnate, crucified, but risen Redeemer. And this leads us to the last thing we see regarding the supremacy of Christ over the church. He is the Redeemer and the point of all salvation. This is what we see in verse 20. Let me read that. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Notice how all of us are found here in this one verse. This verse implies that all of us, under the category of all things, all of us were once, or maybe still are, not at peace with God. The very need for reconciliation implies that there, 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 there lies a deep hostility between us and God. Scripture identifies the source of that hostility as human rebellion, human sinfulness. We are rebellious by nature. We will not submit to his loving rule. And by nature, God is holy and just, and he will punish us for that rebellion. That is why there is a deep hostility between God and man. And that's exactly why we need a redeemer, someone who can mediate, who can bring us to the table to reconcile us, to make peace between God and man. And who better to do that, who better to mediate for us than the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. Jesus is that one mediator who can equally represent both parties. He identifies with God as much as he identifies with man, and that's what's so unique about him. He is fully God and fully man all in one person, which makes him a fitting mediator to reconcile God and man. Notice how In verse 20, it says this reconciliation was achieved in a particular way. He made peace by the blood of his cross. It's by blood, and it's by the blood of his cross. It's his blood, his cross. To make peace with God, you have to understand, God does not ask you to sacrifice. He doesn't expect any sweat or blood on your part. You don't have to work at it to make peace with God. That right there, friends, that, that, that emphasis on it's the blood of Jesus on his cross, that it was a word, especially for the Colossians who were tempted to adopt these ascetic practices to, to harshly treat their bodies, whipping their bodies in, in some kind of attempt to curb their sinful desires, hoping that just by a little sweat and blood, they can finally be complete and adequate and qualified before God. He's saying, no, it's only by Jesus' blood that you are complete. Well, friends, that's the same word for us today. Because aren't we doing something similar? Maybe not physically harming ourselves, but, but doing something similar and beating ourselves up all the time over our sin. We have these little self made ways of of torturing ourselves when we feel so guilty over our sin. Because just saying sorry to God doesn't feel like it's enough. Before God takes us back for the umpteenth time, we feel like we feel like we should just pay a little, that 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 we should just sweat it out a little bit, that that maybe just shed a, a little bit of blood. Christian, stop torturing yourself. Stop beating yourself up. Remember, Jesus experienced all of that so that you wouldn't have to. The eternal Son of God, the perfect Son of Man, gave his own sweat and blood to reconcile you to God. You don't have to supplement his work of salvation. Christ is sufficient. He is adequate. 
and so are those who hide themselves in him. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you have not placed your total trust in Jesus and committed yourself to follow him for the rest of your days, today, I just want you to know that your creator, your sustainer, your God offers peace and forgiveness of sins through the blood of his son's cross. You receive that promise of peace by reaching out to him and receiving this grace, receiving this peace. You can pray. You can pray something like this. Say something like, Jesus, I know I have not treated you as supreme, as preeminent. I've been treating myself that way. Please forgive me. Forgive me by the blood of the cross. I want to thank you for your sufficiency. I want to live my life now under your supremacy. Let me pray for you. I pray, Father, that that kind of prayer will resonate with everyone here in this room, especially for those who have yet to place their faith in Christ. May you open up their hearts, change their hearts, and give them that faith to believe that Christ is sufficient and Christ is supreme, and they want to embrace Christ as their Redeemer. For those of us who have Christ, who are found in Christ, may we rest in our labors. May we rest right now in the sufficiency of Christ because of the supremacy of Christ. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.